The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrance incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make, a san- make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you, concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers by the Kids Zone sign. If this is your child's first time in Children's Church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Thank you, Caleb. We are in the book of Exodus, as we just had read for us, and we are looking at uh, the way God has leading his people through the wilderness. Uh, So he's delivered them from Egypt, and they're going towards the promised land. And we're looking at the road in the wilderness and how God gives provisions. And this morning, that provision that we'll look at is the provision of the tabernacle, this tent, this this place of worship. And um, what we'll need to look at first is a question. And the question is this. The question is, what does God want? What does God want? And no matter who you are, you will answer that question somehow, actively, passively, reactively, whatever it may be. You will answer the question of what does God want somehow? And it may be that you don't think that there is a God that, that wants anything. That You may think that, uh, you know, you don't care what he wants if there is a God. If there is a God and, and, and you are in a relationship with him, you want to coax him. You can coax him into something by your giving. If you do know what he wants, then you know what? I, maybe I'm not giving enough. Maybe I'm not doing enough. Maybe I'm not doing what he wants. We all answer the question of what does God want? Some way, somehow. And we will orchestrate our lives around that answer uh, to that question. But here as we talk about an Old Testament passage with grainy details, even at times seemingly, what we need to point out is that we have the answer to that question. What does God want? And in Exodus 25 and some of 29, we see the answer to that question is, God wants you. That God wants you. And it's permeated throughout this passage. And we'll see it in three ways uh, this morning. That God wants you. We'll see it first in the power of giving, uh, second in the power of beauty, and third in the power of presence. And as we look at this old passage Let's take a moment and pray and ask the Lord to bless the study of his word by the power of his spirit. Let's pray.
Lord, there are things that you love that are happening right this moment. You love your people. You love when your people gather in your name. You love when uh, your word, even when it's confusing to us, uh, when, it, when it's dove in and explored into. There are things that you love that are happening right this very moment. And because you love it, Lord, and because you love your people, would you pour out your spirit that we would walk away and we would say that we've encountered the living God because of the fact that he loves to move among his people. That's only possible if you are present with us these next few moments, minutes. So do that very thing. Christ, we pray that because you have walked out of the tomb. May we walk out with you. We pray in your name. Amen. So Exodus 25, we'll first see the power of giving. The power of giving. Uh, the NBC show that uh, I love and most of you love, and if you don't love, you should love, The Office. And in The Office, there's a character named Dwight. And Dwight is eccentric. We'll just call him that. That he owns a 100-acre beet farm. He's a paper salesman in Pennsylvania. He loves Battlestar Galactica. He knows facts about animals that you don't want to know, but he'll tell you about it. Right? He, he's eccentric. And he is given the title... Early on in the seasons of the show, assistant to the regional manager, which he then thwarts and twists to assistant regional manager. Now, later on in the seasons, a little spoiler alert, nothing crazy, that he will be passed over for a co-manager position by his neighboring nemesis, Jim. That Jim will become the co-manager with his beloved friend, Michael Scott, and he won't get the job. And to exact his vengeance, he will drive to New York, he will buy a bunch of bagels, he'll drive back to Scranton, Pennsylvania, and he will go and be the first person in the office that day. And one by one, he'll go around the office to hand bagels out. They say, thanks, Dwight. Gee, you went to New York all for, all for us. And he says, no, don't worry, you owe me one. And he's adding up these tabs of, you owe me one, you owe me one. And there's a moment after this where he, there's a camera on his face and he says this. He says, can't a guy just buy some bagels for his friends so they'll owe him a favor? Which he can use to get someone fired who stole a co-manager position anymore? Jeez, when did everyone get so cynical? For Dwight, the power of giving is something that empowers him to get something back. The power of giving for him is to give so that he stacks up these IOUs. And a dangerous ease for those, if you call yourself a Christian, is just that very thing. That when you give and God prompts you to give and be generous and live a life of generosity, that there is a, there's a temptation and a dangerous ease to think, I have done exactly what you told me, God. Now it's time for you to return the favor. It's time for you to give a little kickback to me because I've done what you said. I've given you. Now it's time for you uh, to settle it up. Now, if you're not a Christian, there's a suspicion when it comes to Christianity and giving put together uh, because often there's a dangerous ease for Christians to use God's name to kind of manipulate you and co-opt you 
into giving. And those are examples, but they're certainly examples that we've seen all throughout history and even now. The example of, yeah, I want to empower myself, that I have a stacked deck of IOUs where God owes me, or, or frankly, generosity and the call to generosity and giving is just gross. And this morning, what we need to really grab our, our, our arms around and grab hold of is the fact that we can't really understand this Christianity thing. We can't understand the person of Christ if we don't have a good grasp on the power of giving. I would offer you that. So what is the heart behind giving? What is the power of giving? Uh, for the Israelites, they were, for 400 years, they were in Egypt, and they were slaves in Egypt. And they didn't uh, just give to Pharaoh, they were Pharaohs. They themselves belonged to him. They were his property, they were the slaves. And now God is bringing them out, he's, he's delivered them from that place of slavery, and he's brought them through the Red Sea and done all of these things, these provisions that we're looking at in this sermon series. And now he's saying, hey, I want you to give to me. I want you to offer something to me. And we see that amid that offering, it's this plan for the tabernacle, the blueprints for where God and man will meet in this tent, the tabernacle. And chapters uh, 25 to 31 of the book of Exodus tells us about these blueprints, the, the examples, the details of it. And it begins this way. In verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. God is asking for a free will offering, a free will contribution, where that is to say, He's not demanding it, He's asking for it. If your heart is moved at the request, you'll receive something. God tells Moses. Everything that God is asking for here is framed by a relationship. The request is framed by a relationship because he's saying, hey, look, Israelites, I have gone to where you were. I heard your cry in Egypt that you were miserable and I delivered you. And I took you through the Red Sea and I I delivered you there. And I gave you these pillars of fire and cloud to lead you. So you know I'm right there in front of you. You can see me. And I gave you bread from heaven and manna and meat to feed you. And I gave you this law so you can know who I am and you can learn what it's like to be my children. And I gave you other laws, how to relate to your neighbors and how to value the low people because you were low once in Egypt. He's saying, I've given you all these things because I'm in a relationship with you. And I want to take this relationship to the next step. I want you to offer something to me. I want you to give to the tabernacle building project. Now, we need to point something out really quick. Um, God doesn't need you. And God doesn't need your stuff. Uh, If he did, he's really not really worth worshiping if he needs your stuff, if he's so weak and so uh, behind on the ball and lacking in endowment. But the fact that God doesn't need you or need your stuff, actually, to our inflated egos It's humbling. It's humbling that God doesn't need us or need our stuff. And to our strings-attached tendencies, it's kind of jarring. We kind of think to ourselves, wait a second, but but I want to try to buy my way in, God, like this country club. And to our materialism, it's actually kind of embarrassing that God doesn't even need or want our stuff. 
because that's the stuff we value, and does he not value it? And yet, to the deepest desire of our human hearts, it's dignifying to the thought that God wants you. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. The reason behind giving and the power behind generosity is that it's good and meaningful because it changes you as the giver. It changes you as the giver. It gives you meaning and dignity. When I was in elementary school, my brothers uh, were in high school, and they played football, and I was the high school football team's ball boy. And I had an oversized sweatshirt that my brothers had, and I had a towel over my shoulders, and I would uh, look at the forecast for Friday night, and if it was rainy, I'd have one here and one here, towels, packed and ready to go to make those things dry for the, for the quarterback and for the kicker. I was amazing. <laughs> and I loved it. I got to be around my brothers, and they were my heroes. And I took my job so serious. And you know what I never did as a ball boy? I, I never threw the touchdown that won the game. And I never kicked the, the field goal to send it to overtime uh, and, and, you know, the, the nail-biting moment. I never called the play that was perfectly orchestrated for just this moment like a coach did. I never did any of that as a ball boy. But you know what I did as a little elementary school ball boy this big, hanging out with guys this big, is that I had meaning and dignity because I got to offer the thing that I had to the thing and the people that I loved. And the power of giving is God saying, I'm inviting you into something to have your heart shaped and dignity given when you give to something that you love. When you give, you're changed, you're free, you're fulfilled, and actually you have fun. It's not about the amount God, in the New Testament, it's so, God, Jesus tells about the story of the, of the widow. She gives these little tiny shekels that are nothing, pretty much. And yeah, it's called the widow's mite. He feeds 20,000 people with just some bread and some fish. Right? It's never about the amount. And God is saying, always, as the giver, I'm here to invite you into it for you to be changed because of your love for me. He wants us to know with the freedom and the fullness and the dignity behind giving. And here he's asking, inviting them to build the tabernacle. It would have been a thousand times easier to build the tabernacle the way he did creation. Just boom, a word, it happens. But if he did that, he wouldn't have you. And remember, what does God want? He wants you. For in Pharaoh's land of Egypt... All that the Israelites had belonged to Pharaoh and it made the Israelites just dispensable, forgettable. And everything that Pharaoh did reinforced that fact. But in God's world, in God's economy, everything that he asks of you instills dignity. And everything he does will reinstill that fact. And so with that in mind, I want to pose a question for you. What do you have to contribute to God? Not because he needs it, but because you need it. Because you need to have your heart shaped by a love of offering something to someone that you love. And like a little third grade Ben, 
hanging out on the high school football team, you actually get meaning and dignity and fulfillment from it. So if that's the power of giving, that we're shaped and we're formed, it's the classroom where we have our loves shaped. What is the, the power of beauty that we see? And it's in the details of the tabernacle. Now, chapters 25 to 31 tells us about the blueprint, that these details, and it's like uh, the old MTV show Cribs, that we see this extravagant display of unnecessary detail. That there's 12 bathrooms, and there's 12 bedrooms, there's a car for every bathroom, there's a pool for every car. I mean, it's crazy. And we look at this list of the, the tabernacle, and it's pretty similar. I mean, it seems kind of outrageous and extravagant. And it says this. It says the details are gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skin, goat skin, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stone and stones for setting and for the ephod and for the breastplate, breastpiece. Uh, if the church was to be this, Brent has a lot of work to do. But when we see something in Scripture that is more than meets the eye, usually there's more than meets the eye. If there's things that make us gloss over our eyes, usually we probably should lean into it because there's something there. And that's exactly the case here. Because what goes in one ear and out the other for us in modern day would have had the ears of the Israelites perk up. Because here uh, in Exodus 25, we hear about the tabernacle and the details of it. And in that list of details, it talks about gold and onyx and fragrant incense. To hear about that in Exodus 25, Exodus, the second book of the Bible, Moses is telling the people about. And the reason their ears perked up is because in the first book of the Bible that Moses told them in Genesis, they've heard about a place that's like this. They've heard about the Garden of Eden. And in Genesis 2.12, they've heard about what the Garden of Eden looks like and the details of the Garden of Eden. That, yeah, the tabernacle has gold and onyx stone and fragrant incense. And in Genesis 2.12, they hear that the, the Garden of Eden has gold and onyx stone and fragrant incense. God is saying the beauty of the tabernacle is to give you the smallest piece and taste of what Eden was like. Where I dwelled with my people, Adam and Eve, perfectly. And everything was great the way it should be. And you know what? I'm still committed to that plan to the point in which I'm going to give it to you now in the tabernacle. The, and the amazing part of it is that, yeah, he'll give them the small taste of Eden in the tabernacle, but, but the, the amazing part of it is that it will come through Egypt. And here's what I mean. If you are a slave for 400 years, you don't have a bank account that's accruing interest or having these little deposits given to it. You have nothing. You have nothing because you are nothing. And so if you're a slave and your parents are a slave and your grandparents are a slave and your great-grandparents are a slave, there's a way of life. And there's a way that you see and pick, pick up on through past generations that you relate to your captor. 
and you nod your head and you say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. And so if the Israelites have nothing, and yet God is saying, give me the stuff that you have now to build the tabernacle, where do they get it from? In Exodus 12, before they leave Egypt in the Passover, uh, God tells Moses to, to tell the people, go as the enslaved people, go to your captor, go to the Egyptians and say, hey, I would like all your stuff now, please. And so they're like, okay. And they go. And it says in, in Exodus 12 that, that God moved in the heart of the Egyptians so as to look upon the Israelites with favor. And it says when the Israelites asked the Egyptians for the stuff, the gold, the, the, the silver, the bronze, all this stuff, one translation says they picked those Egyptians clean. But the Egyptians just let them have it all. Let's take a moment. God is building the place where he meets his people with beauty and detail and a taste of the Garden of Eden, he's going to build it with the materials that they got from their captor. In a word, that's saying, I am a God that takes the things that enslaved you, that, that you were a slave to, that had your number, that you couldn't outdo. I'm going to take that I'm going to take your captor's trophy and fashion it in such a way that you will know that I want you. If God is that big, where do you need that kind of work in your life? If that's the God that we worship today, where do you need that power at work? The power that says, I'm here to take the, the captor that is your captor, the enslaver that is your enslaver, the thing that has your number, the thing that knows you better than you know yourself, I'm here to take it and actually fashion it in such a powerful way to make you know beauty and you know me as your God. That's the business God is in. Now, in no way am I trying to microwave meaning into your story. But we do need to point out the details of the tabernacle are not meant to bore us. The details of the tabernacle are meant to show us that the power of beauty is that God ac accomplishes his purpose through reclaiming his stuff from evil and making beauty out of it, just like he did with the Egyptians and the tabernacle and just like he will in your life in the places that seem thwarted and evil and twisted and wrong. He's a God that cultivates beauty from those kind of places. Uh, but lastly, he, he's doing this, this place of beauty, this place of the tabernacle for a reason. And then this last point that we see is the power of his presence. The power of his presence. 2413 Foxhaven Drive. That's my parents' address. It's a house I grew up in. And in that house, it's a 1974 brick house. And there's a, there's a uh, driveway to the right. And I would whip that 1992 Chevy Silverado in that driveway and park to the far right parking space. And I would walk in through the garage, past the basketballs that were last pumped up in 1999. And I would go and step up into the laundry room. 
And I would go open the door, this, this solid wood door, and slam it. I can still hear the noise in my ear. And I would see this fireplace in the den with the couches and TV. And I would walk through to this breakfast nook. And there's like a 19, 1800 breakfast table with, with a kitchen filled with my mom's cooking. And, and an eight-week kitchen renovation took eight years. And I would walk through that now renovated kitchen. And I would go. And I'd go up the stairs, through the dining room, up the stairs to the bedrooms. All right, this is the detail of the greatest place ever made. And I would light a match to it yesterday. If it was between the place and the people that the place has. When we look at the details of the tabernacle, we're not meant to get lost in the details of the place. Because the power of the tabernacle is the power of God's presence. We look at the place and we get the God of the tabernacle. He says it to us. In verses 8 and on, he says this, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. And then for four or five chapters, he talks about the details of the tabernacle. And then chapter 29, verse 44, he says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron and also his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. The tabernacle is not this DIY project that God is saying, hey, Israelites, give me some stuff to build something for you. The tabernacle is the place where God says, I am so committed to wanting you that I'm going to build something where you know my presence will reside in. God wants to be with his people to the point that he will condescend to our level and he will dwell in a tent. And God wants to be with his people to the point that he will condescend to our level and he will dwell among us as one of us. In John 1, we hear the words of the gospel writer, the the beginning of the New Testament of the Gospels. And John 1 says this in verse uh, 1, chapter, sorry, verse 14 of chapter 1. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God himself made his dwelling among us. And that Greek word dwelling is the same Old Testament Greek word for God's presence in the tabernacle. What we see in the tabernacle in Exodus 25 is the same thing that we see right before our eyes in John 1, where God is saying, my son will dwell with you just as I dwelled with you in the desert and the wilderness. And just as the tabernacle is a provision, so my son is a provision for you. That God will dwell with his people. 
And just as the perfect tabernacle, the true tabernacle, Jesus, goes to a cross, when he dies there, what we see is this curtain that's in the temple, in the place where God and man used to meet after the tabernacle was, was made official in Jerusalem. There's a curtain that rips from the top down. Because when Jesus dies, the curtain, the curtain tears because God says there's no more separation between you and I. To the point that in Acts 2 at Pentecost, God will give his spirit to all people. His spirit won't just dwell in a tabernacle or a temple or just in the person of Christ, but in his people. God wants you. And we see how all human history ends and culminates and how forever begins in Revelation 21. And there we see the power of God's presence like Adam and Eve knew it. We will know because God wants you. Revelation 21 verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. He will be their God, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. The culmination of all things, of human history, of your story, of my story, is this, that God will be with his people. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. The entire story of Scripture is about God's proximity to his people. That in Eden, they were perfectly relating to one another together. And then sin happened. And then the tabernacle happens to give him his presence in the wilderness. And then we see the temple in the Old Testament. And then we see the person of Christ as the perfectly dwelling tabernacle among us in flesh. And then when he gives us his spirit in us, and then we see in Revelation 21, he's with us again. The entire story of scripture and the entire story of you is about God's proximity to you. Because God wants you. The tabernacle tells us the heart of God. It's a provision because it tells us the heart of God. And the provision of it tells us the story of a God that is set on moving heaven and earth to get you. The God of all things wants you. Let's pray. When we look in a mirror, Lord, we hear something. When we are still for even a moment, uh, Lord, we hear a story, we hear accusations, we hear things said about us by others, by ourselves, uh, by Satan. And yet, Lord, you look at us and you say, I want you. Lord, for those of us who feel undesired and unwanted, would you give us your vision for our lives? Because it's a beautiful one. It's one that instills dignity. For those of us who feel like you, you are lucky to have us on your team, would you give us humility? 
you want us, Lord. And we see that fact in something like a tabernacle with details. But Lord, we ultimately see it in the person of your son. May we look at him more than we look at ourselves because we long to know the freedom he offers. We pray in your name. Amen. See that fact in something like a tabernacle with details. But Lord, we ultimately see it in the person of your son. May we look at him more than we look at ourselves because we long to know the freedom he offers. We pray in your name. Amen.